Hello everybody, welcome to the seventh podcast of this embryology series with Dr. Webster and myself. Hello. Um, welcome today and hope you're all doing well and these have been useful for you. Um, Dr. Webster, how, how are you doing, by the way, with your, uh, your new little one addition to the family, Annabelle? Fine. <laughs> Fine, thank you. It's Friday afternoon. Even though we've had lots of coffee, it's still Friday afternoon. Okay, so that means nothing's going to change that fact. Yeah, you're going to be rubbish, right? Um, but no, I'm fine, thank you. Actually, this is um, this podcast is all about respiratory embryology, right? Correct. Development of the lungs and what have you. So yeah, it's very relevant to Annabelle actually, because of course you'll remember she was born at 32 weeks, mm-hmm. so seven weeks premature-ish. Um, and as you'll find out as we go through this podcast, uh, Annabelle's lungs wouldn't have been completely developed to a functional level by 32 weeks, not not perfectly functional. So when she was born, she needed a bit of help breathing. Should right. we talk about that now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Tell me about it. Cause well, I she's how old is she now? Is she 10 weeks, 11 weeks? Yeah. Something like that. And she's almost, she's probably just about crossing the six pound barrier. And when she was born, she was three pounds, six ounces. Yeah. Um... And uh, when she was born by cesarean section, she had she was had a fairly good apgar. She was pink wriggly, so she was she was pretty good. She was you know, fairly lively for a premature baby. Sure, but you had a bit of warning, didn't you? And uh, yeah, she was born early because the the about twenty hours before um, uh, we had an indication that she might be deciding to come early, or the uterus deciding that Annabelle needed to be pushed out. Um, so Kim had a couple of steroid injections. And those steroid injections are aimed at uh, helping the lungs develop, you know, speeding up their development in case she comes through. I think there's, there's a bit of evidence to suggest that actually giving those steroids can maybe trigger an early birth as well. So, oh, really? Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> it's still better safer, I suppose. I mean, 32 weeks is fine, really. It's, yeah. It's not that risky. Um, it would have been far riskier if, she, if she'd stayed in the uterus. Sure. Um, so maybe her lungs were a little bit further developed than if she hadn't had those steroid injections when yeah. she was born. But um, she was grunting. She was breathing on her own mostly, but she needed a bit of help in expanding her lungs, um, which the neonatologists did. And then when she was on the intensive care unit ward in her incubator, she just had an oxygen line to her nose, so she had a bit of extra oxygen coming in, which is a bit of positive pressure. I don't know if that counts as CPAP or not. I think the consultant would probably say it would do. So, you know, positive pressure air being added to her breathing to help her breathe but she wasn't on a ventilator so all her right. muscles and what have you were functioning she was able to draw in um air and push mm-hmm. air out. she was able to breathe on her own but giving her extra oxygen um helped her because it was you could see it was very hard work for her to breathe she was led in her front at the time of course the yeah, the, the normal rationale for babies is they should sleep on their back right. but when they're having trouble breathing when they're very small they sleep on their front okay. and um, I guess that helps fix the scapula and what have you and helps some of the accessory muscles of respiration lift and open up the rib cage. Um, you can see you know, she was really puffing and panting to get the air in, so adding a bit of oxygen meant she didn't have to breathe quite as hard and quite as fast sure. to get her levels of oxygen in her blood up to the appropriate level. Uh, yeah, lots of other babies, of course, go on ventilation. They, they, come, they go on and come off ventilation, so the ventilator actually helps them breathe. It pushes air in and takes air out of the lungs, you know, depending upon the stage of development and what have you. Right. Um, because the lungs are developing all the way through the fetal stages and, and after birth as well, as yes, we'll see yep. in this podcast. So babies born prematurely will have lungs at different stages of development. And the stage of development isn't at the point where they can exchange enough gas, oxygen in, carbon dioxide out and so on, yeah. 
to support themselves comfortably. So a bit of help helps. Excellent. I see. But she's fine now, isn't she? She's fine, yeah. She, her lungs certainly work very well. <laughs> mostly at three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock, <laughs> six o'clock in the morning. Oh, for you. <laughs> no, it's all worthwhile. She's good. Yeah. But she's, you know, she's feeding a lot, so she's hating a lot for food. <laughs> and I'm not the one that has to feed her, so that's okay. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's all worthwhile. And you had your first cuddle yesterday. I had my first cuddle yesterday. Every time I've seen her, I don't know what you're complaining about, because every time I see her, <laughs> she is out of, for the count. Yeah. She's sleeping so soundly that you don't even want to touch her. She's nocturnal. Yeah. Like well, okay. Um, so, yeah, I had a nice little cuddle with her yesterday. It was lovely. <laughs> and she is nice to cuddle, isn't she? Yes. Makes it all worthwhile, because she's so tiny. Yes. Still <laughs> very, very tiny. But she's a very pretty little girl. Yeah. She actually looks quite like a brother. She does. But she's... Yeah, she was out of um, the neonatal unit, which was an excellent. The nursing care there was superb and the consultants were good. I've got to say that because one of the consultants is hopefully going to come in and talk to us <laughs> and this podcast. But they were. They were very, very good. Um, and she was only in there for, what, three and a half weeks? Not long, really. I think if she was born at 32 weeks and maybe a few days, if you ask me, that's all a little bit, you know biological right bit you know i doubt it's that accurate but they have to i think one of the, the guidelines is they have to be in until they would have been 36 weeks gestation okay. and she came out pretty much actually when she was 36 weeks um so that was about as early as she could come out which yeah. was just before christmas and um yeah so she after the first week of intensive care her lungs developed very quickly and she was absolutely fine brilliant yeah so should we talk about lung development i think we should get on to that now how are we going to cover this then should we do this chronologically from yeah, the bud up to the yeah. up to kind of around birth and that sort of time. Yeah, yes. I think that that will show a nice run through, and everyone can sort of hold the images in your mind's eye, things like that. Okay, so we'll then we'll start off talking about the original the bunk lung bud, the yeah. diverticulum, where that comes from, and then we'll look and see how that branches and mm-hmm. new Obviously buds and canals yep. and segments and that sort of thing, and then we'll look at the the terminal bits, the end bits, the alveoli, the actual gaseous exchange bits, how they develop. Uh, and what the cells there do, and then we should talk about the timings because obviously this is this isn't occurring during the first eight weeks of embryology. No, different like stages. Most things we talk about in yeah. embryology, but this continues through um, the fetal periods. gestation. Yep. Yeah, and then there are the pleural cavities. We don't need to talk about those. the muscles though, do we? Because we mentioned all that when we spoke about the musculoskeletal system. Yep. So the muscles of respiration, we can we've already spoken about really, um, and then we should talk about changes at birth. Right, okay. It's quite a lot, isn't it? Mm, let's crack on. You've been prattling on for a bit as well. Okay, that's you. Right, um, <laughs> okay, so how does the respiratory system start? Yeah, let's start off with talking about um, that initial lung bud. And when we gave the gut embryology mm. podcast, we mentioned the lungs there, didn't we? I think we did. So there's a bud from the foregut. Yeah, and it's actually a ventral bud, so it's coming off the ventral side of the foregut tube, okay? Off the anterior, off the front, yeah. Yeah. Um, and what happens is in the foregut, there's an actual groove forms, and it's called the laryngotracheal groove. Um, sort of clues in the name, really, larynx and trachea, okay? So that groove is grows, um, and it's the ventral side, remember? So, and then this... The um, cells that bud off form what is often called the lung bud, but also the respiratory diverticulum. Those terms are used um, sort of together, I think, quite often. Yeah, both the same, either yeah. acceptable in an exam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so we've got this ventral bud that comes off. Um, and what we have to do is we have to separate 
the two the, the bud from the uh, foregut. So we would need be to, bad if they remained connected. Wouldn't yeah, it? And, and, and I'm sure we'll discuss that maybe with our clinician if we get in. Yeah. Um, so so basically, we've got uh, a bud from the foregut, and we need to separate this bud off. So it's going to be a separate feature or structure rather. So uh, what happens is that actually the sides um, of the tube fold in, begin to fold in on each other, and they're called the tracheoesophageal folds. Okay, tracheoesophageal. Uh-huh. Clues in the name, trachea, esophagus, Mm. okay? So they're going to form those two distinct tubes. So the folds, basically, they come in, they fuse in the middle, okay? So you have still connected, but... They fuse in the middle, kind of in the space between the trachea, or the developing trachea, and the developing esophagus, in between those two. Yeah, exactly right. And boy, it gets pinched off, does it? Basically, yeah. I mean, the name changes from folds to septum, okay? Well, that's fair enough. Um, and then, yeah, it, it gets pinched off and you end up having the two separate tubes. You've got the esophagus, which is dorsal, and you've got the trachea, which is ventral. Ta-da! Okay. If that doesn't happen naturally, I guess you have various fistulas between the two. You do. Which would be unhelpful. I'm sure yeah. they're closed surgically and that sort of thing. Tracheoesophageal fistulas, basically. Oh, okay. Also called TEF. Oh, right. But, um, or the TLA. <laughs> 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 well, um, I'm sure we'll talk about those at another time. Okay, so now we've got the two tubes and basically... Um, we carry on having branching of the system because you know the adult structure of the lung. You know, we've got the trachea, which goes down to the primary bronchi, um, and then just dividing, dividing, dividing. Branching and branching and branching. Like getting tree, smaller yeah. and smaller. Um, and the so reason for that is surface area, isn't it? Yeah, you want to increase Maximum surface area, area, which we'll comment on later. Yeah, so, so this branching occurs, um, and I can't remember how many there are in total. It's quite a lot, I think, and they happen at different stages. Um, that will, the stages that we'll talk at later. Um, so all these branches occur until you get right down to the terminal bronchioles, then the alveolar bron- uh, bronchioles. Right. And then we get alveoli themselves, terminal sac. Okay, so is this a long period of branching then? Um, it, it goes on through the, uh, the stages that we were talking about. Um, it goes on the first three. So branching one is counted as the actual uh, lung bud budding off right. from the yeah. esophagus, and then secondary and tertiary um, bronchi budded off, and that's that's about by week six. You've got these three branches that have happened. So you've got um, two primary bronchi on the left and three primary bronchi on the right. Okay, so week six. Um, that's still in the embryonic period. Because of the different numbers of lobes on the left and right They're going to be the, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and then we get further and further branchings and divisions that happen all through the different stages that we'll look at. I won't mention them now because it will be repetition. Um, but basically it goes all the way along. Um, uh, and then, yeah, we get the alveoli forming. So this and continues and continues and continues. We're talking into, you know, 20 odd weeks, aren't we? Yeah. And they, beyond. Yeah. This beyond, branching beyond, beyond. continues and keeps on going and going and going. Okay. And when we've got these branches then, how do the branches end? You mentioned the alveoli. Yeah, well, we get terminal sac, sacs forming. Um, so the terminal sac, that's the primitive alveoli. Correct. Yeah. So so why is it a primitive alveoli? What's the difference between primitive and mature? Very good question. Now, it's the, to do with the cells, the cell shape. Right. Um, and basically the cells, because um, if you think about what alveoli are going to do, it's going to be all about the gaseous exchange, okay? So yeah. for that to happen, you want um, the surface to be as thin as possible. 
or the primitive alveoli don't have the surface that is as thin as possible. So the uh, epithelial lining is actually cuboidal. Yeah. So that's when they're still cuboidal. They're called um, so terminal cells. Sacs. Are, yeah. Yeah. Cube shaped. Yeah. So cuboidal epithelia. You've all seen that down so the microscope. Obviously, a fat cell like that, it's not going to be easy to pass gas across it. It's going to be very inefficient. Yeah. So then, as the alveoli develop, um, the cells thin out, become much more squamous, and um, they enable gas exchange to occur. And that's when we get the primitive alveoli. That's when we get these flattened cells. Yeah. Okay. What are those cells called? And okay, well, the squat, the squattened, the flattened <laughs> squamous um, epithelia actually end up being called type one cells or type one alveoli, um, alveolar cells. They are gonna, their function is really gonna be gaseous exchange. Okay, so if there's a type one, there's probably gonna be another type. So that's type two cells, type two alveolar cells, and they end up producing surfactant. Surfactant. Ah, surfactant. That, that comes up a lot in exams, doesn't it? Surfactant. It does. It's really, really important in um, decreasing the surface tension uh, of the lung. It means that the lung can stay open and doesn't fold in on itself. So if it was just soggy, would want these open air sacs would want to be stuck together, flattened Correct. like a yeah. wet, wet carrier bag. Yes. Okay. Um, okay, so that's primitive alveoli. Mm -hmm. And they've got type 1 and type 2 alveolar cells, mm -hmm. and they're nice and flattened. So um, it's not until really late in pregnancy around 36 weeks or beyond mm. that they become mature alveoli so what makes them mature alveoli okay well basically 36 weeks um up into term um what happens is the the tissue surrounding these developing alveoli is constantly increasing in its vascularity okay so it's getting more and right. more vascular um, and then what actually happens at this 36-week stage um, and with the mature alveoli is that these capillaries actually start to come into direct contact with the type 1 gaseous exchange cells. Okay, I see. So in the mature alveoli, then we have the blood in yeah. the capillaries and they're tightly linked into the alveolar cells on the other side of which we have the gas. So we yeah. have... So with a with a mature alveoli, yeah. we have the opportunity for gaseous exchange. Absolutely. Right, Bang on. okay. Yeah, so that's really the sort of description of alveoli and how they do develop. Um, yeah. So it's not until that point that we've really got a lung that can do the job of that's only, gaseous yeah, exchange. That's only, fully functional. That's quite late in pregnancy, 36 weeks. The last four weeks are very important for uh, lung development. Mm, okay. Um, right. So should we talk about some of the timings then? Yeah, okay. Well, um, I mentioned before that there are stages of lung development, okay? So there are, some say four, but if you include the embryonic period, that's five, okay? So the embryonic period is where from we get this, uh, the respiratory diverticulum. So it's about week four, where a lot of other things are beginning to develop at this time. So, yeah, okay. So we'll say embryonic period is about four weeks to seven weeks. That's when we start to get that lung bud, bud yeah. budding off the foregut. Yeah, yeah. Right. And we get up to the um, primary bronchi of um, divided. So that happens in that embryonic period, okay? So mm -hmm. four weeks to seven weeks. And then the next stage is called the pseudoglandula, I think. Yeah. Uh, clues in the name of that one. If you look at it under a microscope, yeah. If you look at look at look at it under a microscope, histologically, it looks like a gland. Right. So that's and what that's, it's called. That's, that. that's this branching period, then, is it? Yeah. More and uh, just remind me what weeks that is. Uh, five to sixteen. Okay, so already you can see there's overlap. Yeah. Between the embryonic and the pseudoglandular period, and this carries on all the way through the development. There's a lot of overlap in these stages. Yeah, it's biology. <laughs> it's a good excuse that it's biology. 
So embryonic is four to seven and pseudoglandular is? Five to 16. Five to 16, okay. And the next one um, is called the canalicular? Canalicular period. So that's when we start to see um, like terminal bronchioles. Right. Well, no, sorry. That's when we start, start to, to get the, respiratory yeah. bronchioles, which are kind of the precursors to the alveoli. So basically, the end of the yeah. So in the canicular period, then we actually start to get a respiratory part of the developing respiratory system, rather than just the conducting part, rather than just the stuff right, that pulls oh yeah, the air yeah, down. Yeah, okay. We begin to get the um, respiratory bronchioles. Um, yeah, go and that's going on for about from about sixteen to twenty six weeks. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, don't forget that when we when we're talking about twenty six weeks here, we're still talking uh, embryologically. So. Uh, our clinical colleagues would regard um, what we say as to be 26 weeks to be 28 weeks. So 26 weeks plus two weeks to the last menstrual period. Good point. Which we talked about in our first podcast, so don't forget that. Yeah. Okay, and, and something else that's happening at, in this stage, in this canalicular period as well, is that um, the surrounding tissue becomes a lot more vascularised, okay? So that's quite, it's going to be important. Very, very important, yeah. Okay, so... Then the next stage, how far are we up to now? So from 26 weeks to birth, yes, that's the terminal sac period then. That's when we start to get terminal sacs, primitive alveoli. Yeah. Yep, so that's further different, further development of the respiratory bronchioles. Yeah, and we've talked about that, you know. And, and then at the same time, that's in this stage, that's when we get the differentiation of the two types of cells, type 1 and type 2, um, and still more... Um, blood vessels are being incorporated into the surrounding area and surfactant so is produced. So it's crazy, isn't it? It's, it's not until very late in pregnancy do we get any sort of uh, lung function. Yeah. Um, earlier on, it, it's no good having these little miniature lungs inside the small embryo. It's key. You've got to have the blood supply. You've got to have the surface area. And the surfactant helps a great deal as well. Until you've got that, you aren't going to have a functioning lung that's going to support uh, the respiratory needs of uh, the fetus, are you? No, no, It's crazy. They can have babies born at 25 weeks, 24 weeks clinically. Yeah. How on earth can they it's look amazing. after those babies, those tiny, tiny babies? It I know, amazing. it's so cool. It's very good. So, so We've got up until birth, haven't we, yeah. the terminal sac period, but there is actually another period after that. Cunningly lab- named the alveolar period. Yeah, and that, yeah, that actually overlaps as well. That's from just before birth through childhood. So what happens during the alveolar period? Well, um... <laughs> not not surprisingly, um, it's when the alveoli change from being primitive to ch- to be um, mature. Okay, so there's a rapid thinning of the walls. Um, and remember, we mentioned that for gas exchange, rapid thinning of the walls, and also that's when the um, capillaries that have been growing further and further in the lung tissue become in direct contact, and you create the gas air, gas so, blood barrier, sure. air blood barrier. Whatever yeah. you want to call it. Yeah, same. <laughs> so there's further development of the respiratory part of the uh, the lungs then. Yeah, and, th- and that carries awesome. on, you know, that carries on for a long time. That can carry on for a good few years after birth, even up until seven or eight years, I think. Really? The lungs are developing. And, and when the lungs are growing at this stage, after birth, when the lungs are growing, um, it's because more alveoli are being formed, not because the alveoli are growing. So that's an important distinction. There's no change in size in alveoli, just more form. Mm. So you're creating effectively more and more surface area. Mm. And of go. course, the child's getting bigger and bigger. So yeah, uh, yeah, uh, more body mass to support. So that's the pseudoglandular. Well, you said the embryonic period, didn't embryonic you? Embryonic period, yeah. Pseudoglandular period, the canalicular period, the terminal sac period, and then the alveolar period. 
as easy as that. Okay, so that's those are our timings and our periods. Brilliant. Um, do you want to talk about the development of the pleural cavities around the lungs? Because um, that we've covered the body wall, yeah, the musculoskeletal. We've covered the development of the lung now. If we talk about the development of the pleural cavities just briefly, we can link those two together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with the pleural cavities, um, you've kind of got to hold an image of an embryo in your mind when you're thinking about this, okay? So we've got the ventral bud coming off and we've got the lung buds developing and branching and everything like that. Um, and there's a body space, okay? And the space that surrounds the lungs is called the pleuroperitoneal canal. There's one on either side, okay? So the pleuroperitoneal canals, mm. one on either side um, to, to encompass each lung, okay? Um, they end up being the pleural cavities. That's a direct correlation, okay? Uh -huh. um, there's actually the, the peritoneal cavity, you know, around the rest of the embryo, okay? That has to be divided um, from the what will be the pleural cavities. And there's a membrane, not surprisingly called the pleuroperitoneal membrane, okay? So that just divides what's going to be pleural cavities from the peritoneal cavity. And at the same time, because the lungs are quite near the developing heart, that's the um, pericardial cav cavity that's surrounding the heart, and you have to have um, a membrane, something to divide the lungs from the developing heart, and so that's called the pleuropericardial uh, membrane Neat. or folds. Okay. So uh, that's quite simplified, but um, I think that's probably enough. So basically, what you're looking at is the pericardioperitoneal cavities or canals end up being the pleural cavities okay and one more thing about pleura if i yes. may okay you know from your um, anatomy of the adult lung that there are two types of pleura for the lung visceral and parietal okay so what i want you to know is that the visceral pleura which is surrounding the lung yes is derived from splanchnic mesoderm uh-huh but the parietal pleura is actually derived from somatic mesoderm uh-huh. End of story. Uh-huh. Okay, thank you. That'll do, I think. Um, so one other thing. Should we talk about the changes that occur with birth? Or should Ooh, we leave on, that then. to the consultant? Um, I think we can mention a few things, but it's very difficult to distinguish it from what's happening at the heart, but obviously we're going to do that in another podcast. We'll have to... Yeah, yeah, some big changes in cardiovascular. Uh, and in it's all into... Yeah, it's all interlinked. So if we try and just stick to the lungs... yeah. Um, well, one important thing is that in a um, fetus that there's fluid. The lungs are full of fluid until you're lungs, born, aren't yeah. they? What happens to that then? Um, well, there are some breathing movements before birth which kind of condition the respiratory muscles as much as anything else to get ready for for breathing. Right. But when we're born, um, we don't vomit up all this liquid like the bloke out of the abyss do we oh such a shame <laughs> it doesn't it's not like you have to hold the baby upside down and drain it all out no um so some of that before birth some of that fluid is um resorbed by the blood and the lymph within the lungs so some of it goes that way um and some, some does of it, come out of the mouth some of it is just remaining in the lungs and is cleared out and with air entering alveoli in the first breath um some of that is sorted out. That's no sense, does it? So, yeah, I mean, think about it, the lungs are a little bit collapsed, aren't they? You know, so yeah. some of that fluid is resorbed. The volume within the lungs is less at birth with the fluid that's in there. Right. And with the first breath and air being drawn in, the lungs become larger and expand. And the surfactant coat then helps um, 
keep those alveoli open. open until, I see. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Anything else worth mentioning? Um. I don't know. Um. I think, I think that's about it. Yeah, I think you're right. Trying to think of other things to mention, but really. Okay, so we've covered the development of the lungs, normal development of the lungs, from the lung bud up to birth and yeah. beyond, saying that uh, the lungs continue to develop after after birth. Up after to seven birth. seven years, ten years, that sort of thing. And beyond. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite easy, actually. I was quite pleased we went through that. Yeah, so now let's introduce our neonatal consultant to have a chat about the problems that pre- premature babies have when they when the lungs are very obviously a very early stage of respiratory development or uh, functional development rather, right? And how they get over those problems. Yeah. All right. Okay, and again, we have a, another special guest with us. We have a clinician adding to our embryology podcast. We have uh, Dr. Geraint Morris, who's a consultant neonatologist from Singleton Hospital. Thank you very much for coming along. No problem, sir. Uh, Geraint was in uh, the neonatology unit when Annabelle was up there, although it was it was Carol, uh, Carol, was it? Carol, Carol Sullivan. Sullivan who was looking after Annabelle. But uh, I just have a few chats with you when, when I was in and out of there. That's right. Um, so in this podcast, we've been talking about uh, normal development of uh, the respiratory system. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about... Um, the maturity during the fetal stages and later in gestation at birth and that sort of thing. And Annabelle was born at 32 weeks, so she had some respiratory problems, although she seemed to be pretty good mm. to me at yeah. 32 weeks. What sort of respiratory problems do you commonly see in babies of that age, say 30 weeks, 32 weeks, 28 weeks? Yeah. Well, the main problem with premature birth is that these babies are often born before they've produced much surfactant in their lungs. Um, surfactant is a phospholipid, sure. uh, which is produced in the type 2 pneumocytes in the lungs. And there is a bit of biological vari- variation in terms of when each individual baby produces enough surfactant to be born. See, that's good, because we say it's biology, everybody's a little bit different. It's nice to hear mm. clinicians saying that as well. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Everything's subject to biological yeah. variability. Um, but gen- in general, most babies born at 28 weeks gestation would have surfactant deficiency. Right. Whereas I would have thought that most babies born at 32 weeks would not have uh, many problems with surfactant deficiency. Right. Um, surfactant, as you know, is a, uh, a substance which is produced in the lungs in order to reduce the surface tension of water. And the epithelium of the lung is covered by a thin layer of water. Mm-hmm. So if you don't produce surfactant, that means that the surface tension of that water lying, lining is very high. And the tendency then is for the airways to collapse right. after being inflated. So the baby takes the first breath, but then the airways collapse again. Yeah, because Annabelle needed a little bit of help in inflating her lungs in the first instance. Is that the main reason why? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the lungs are like a balloon. You know, that mm. initial inflation is very difficult for them. But as soon as the balloon is inflated, then after that, it's easier to inflate the, the, the balloon. And the lungs follow a very similar pattern to that. Um, okay. So some babies need just those initial few inflation breaths, but other babies then, if they have severe surfactant deficiency, will need ongoing support for their their breathing. Is that where they need a ventilator, or is a ventilator more important for other for 
other problems with well, the, the, the important thing about ventilation is that you're delivering a positive pressure into yeah. the airway and that, if you like, um, acts against this tendency to, for the airways to collapse. Okay. Um, so the positive pressure in the airway counteracts the effect of the airways to collapse and that helps the alveoli to stay open. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other thing that seems to be a common treatment is... Um, Giving extra oxygen to the baby. Yeah. So what, why is that necessary? Well, oxygen doesn't dissolve very readily uh, in water. And right. uh, so you need quite a large surface area uh, of respiratory epithelium in order yeah. to get enough oxygen into the body. Yeah. And if you've got lungs in a premature baby, which are both lacking in surfactant, such that the alveoli are collapsed. Yeah. And also perhaps underdeveloped in that there aren't, aren't that many alveolar, alveolar around. Yeah then for both of those reasons, the respiratory surface area is reduced. And so they therefore need a higher inspiratory oxygen fraction yeah. in order to maintain adequate oxygenation of the tissues. Excellent. Cool. Thank you. Uh, Rhi, you've got a list of... Yeah, while we're talking about... While we're talking about, um, you know, this these types of problems, can you just sort of um, go into respiratory distress syndrome and tell us a little bit about how often you see it, what do you do, you know, all those sort of things, diagnosis and that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. Well, personally, um, I would see respiratory distress syndrome in mm, about 200, 250 babies a year. Right. We have a birth rate in Swansea of about 5,000 a year. Right. So it's quite a high number. Yeah. Um, Respiratory distress syndrome is typically a problem of premature babies, but it can occur in term babies as well. Right. Um, but in the main, it's premature babies who have the problem. Okay, and so what kind of signs are you looking for? Is it sort of gasping for breath? and? Yeah, anything which causes respiratory distress in a young infant um, will have a very similar clinical presentation. Yeah. So these babies will have grunting respiration, so... They will tend to breathe out against a closed glottis. Right. And that fulfills the function that the ventilation was fulfilling, yeah. uh, as we mentioned earlier on. In other words, what they're trying to do is maintain a positive airway pressure inside their lungs. So by breathing out against a closed glottis, then they make a, a sound like, uh, 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 that kind of thing. Yeah. And um, that means that they're trying to inflate their al- alveoli. I so see. there's grunting respiration. And then their respiratory rate is high. Yeah. So in a premature baby, you might have respiratory rates of up to 100 breaths per minute. Wow, yeah. Um, something like that. And then uh, they might have flaring of the ally nasi, which right. are the nostrils. Yeah, yeah. And um, you might see recession as well. And because the chest wall is very compliant in a premature baby, you don't tend to see intercostal recession right. so much as recession of the whole chest. So you see sternal recession um, as a sign of difficulty breathing. I see. And so, and then what do you do afterwards, after you've diagnosed? Okay, well, if you've got any infant with um, respiratory dif- difficulty, um, then you need to check their oxygen saturations mm-hmm. and give them extra oxygen if they require it. Yeah. Um, most babies who have respiratory distress syndrome will respond to early positive airway pressure being delivered to them. So... What we do in the clinical setting is give them something called CPAP. Yeah. Uh, conti- continuous positive airway pressure. Yeah, I've heard of that. Um, yep. Basically, you give either a mask 
a nasal mask over the baby's nose, which forms a seal around the nose, mm-hmm. or you give them prongs into the nostrils, which again form a seal, and then you blow air uh, or air plus oxygen into that mask, and then that de- delivers the positive airway pressure. If they don't improve on that, then um, they will need intubation. So right. you need to put a tube down into the trachea yep. and connect the baby to a mechanical ventilator, which then delivers intermittent uh, positive pressure breaths to mimic normal respiration. Brilliant. Right, fascinating. And how, um, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it's variable on how quickly they recover and, and develop. Sure. Well, um, I'm not quite sure why this happens, but many babies actually get worse in the first 48 hours. Worse before they get better. And then they tend to get better. Um, an important part of their treatment is actually giving surfactant to them. Oh, right. And how is so, that done? Well, we can actually deliver um, surfactant to the lungs by just injecting it down the tracheal tube. Wow. Uh, and because of its chemical properties, it tends to disperse very easily into the lungs under the ventilation breaths. Mm. Um, and it gets out into the alveoli pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and then disappears from the trachea. Right. And that uh, usually brings about a very dramatic improvement sure, in, the, sure. in the baby's condition. It's a good idea. I never thought of that. Well, yeah. it's so simple. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And it's I, costly stuff, Mike. Oh, is it? Yeah. Is very it? expensive, but it's well worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, I've got one question. Um, respiratory distress syndrome used to be called hyaline membrane yeah. um, disease, isn't That's it? Right. Which Which do you use now? We tend to use the term respiratory distress syndrome. Yeah. Although, personally, I don't like that term very much because it's not very specific. Yeah. Um, I think a better term would be um, lung disease of prematurity or something like that. Um, Hyaline membrane disease is a bit old-fashioned. It, it, it's, yeah. it's a post-mortem kind of yeah. finding, really. Yeah, okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, RDS is what we say. Right, cool. I just wondered. Brilliant. All right, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, a couple of the other things we mentioned, I mentioned in the lecture that I'd like just to go over. Mm-hmm. So sort of coming back a little bit out of the lungs, if you like, um, we were looking at the development of the trachea and the esophagus and how the bud off sure. um, and what happens when it goes wrong, basically. So tracheal, esophageal, fistula and things yeah. like that. So how often would you see that? Okay, well, tracheoesophageal fistula and esophageal atresia, yeah. we tend to group together gotcha. as, a, as a group of conditions. Um, and I would probably see that once a year, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty rare, but um, well known, and you know, not not that rare. Yeah, and and so, um, sort of, what symptoms would the the baby be having that you'd suspect that? Okay, um, well, the commonest um, pattern of abnormality that you see in this group of conditions, yeah, um, is a proximal esophageal atresia with um, a distal tracheoesophageal fistula. Gotcha. So, right, in other yeah. words. The proximal esophagus is blind ending, yep. whereas the distal esophagus connects to the trachea. Yeah. And that's the commonest combination. Mm. Um, now, clearly, the baby would not be able to swallow the baby's milk all the way down to the stomach. Yeah. And the milk would pool in the upper pouch of the esophagus and then eventually be regurgitated into the pharynx. Um, so the commonest sort of presentation then would be the baby's fine until being fed may have drooled a little bit of saliva but mm. the baby's usually okay until the first feed takes the first feed and then chokes coughs splutters and becomes blue I see. Uh, because the baby's 
um, milk has been regurgitated in the pharynx and then goes down the trachea, right. causing respiratory distress. And then you've got all those other signs of respiratory distress to look sure. for as well. And um, and so if that was suspected, how do you actually identify it? Is it a... Okay, well, um, you can pass a nasogastric tube mm -hmm. into that upper esophagus and then take an x-ray. Right. And um, what you'll see is that the tube does not pass all the way down into the stomach. It'll yeah, stop clear. halfway down the neck. Um, and uh, sometimes it comes to just a stop. At other times it loops round, so you can see it looping round and back up oh. on the x-ray. Um, taking x-rays is also important because... Um, if you've got a baby with esophageal atresia, the next most important question is, is there a distal fistula? Right. In other words, is there a, a fistula in association with that esophageal atresia? Mm -hmm. And the way to answer that is by looking at the x-ray and seeing if there's any air in the stomach. Right. Uh -huh. If there is air in the stomach, you know that there must be a fistula between the distal esophagus and the trachea. Brilliant. And tell me, is it um, a surgical procedure to correct? Yeah, it's a surgical emergency. So... Yeah. Um, what you need to do is leave that NG tube in place, stop all enteral feeds, stop all milk feeds, mm -hmm. um, keep the upper pouch empty so you put the NG tube on suction right? so that even if the baby swallows his or her own saliva, that will be out. sucked out immediately and not cause an aspiration. I see. And then you have to get the, see the baby seen by a surgeon. And uh, the... Operation is then um, to join up the two ends of the esophagus and yeah. tie off the off the fistula, uh, which is sometimes not an easy thing to do, particularly if the upper pouch of the esophagus is quite a long way from the, from the distal the, yeah. part of the esophagus. So there's quite an area to cover, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Sometimes you you have to use a little piece of colon to, oh, to bridge really? the gap. Yeah. Fascinating. Right. Mm. Um, I think that's everything we can say about that of interest. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the other um, anomalies that we talked about was pulmonary agenesis. I wonder yeah. if you could just tell me a little bit about how often you see that. And Sure. You know, okay. Kind of well, pulmonary agenesis, or we tend to use the, the term pulmonary hypoplasia. Okay. Um, because, in fact, most babies who have a problem with the growth of their lungs have some lung growth. Right. Um, and it's actually quite rare to have pulmonary agenesis, in other words, complete None. absence yeah. of, of one or other, or other lung. Um, but there are conditions which cause poor growth of the lungs, in particular uh, if there's anything that causes oligohydramnios. So if you have a low volume of amniotic fluid around the baby, mm -hmm. then the uterus tends to squash the baby's chest, and that restricts not just the growth of the lungs, but it actually uh, restricts the development of the lungs as well. Right. Uh, another example of something that would cause poor growth of the lungs is a diaphragmatic hernia. Yeah. Uh, that's basically a defect in the diaphragm which allows the abdominal contents to migrate upwards into the thorax. So there's just not the same amount of room that there would be in the Exactly, that's in the right. Otherwise. And the abdominal contents then squeeze the lungs. Mm -hmm. And I say lungs on purpose because it not only squeezes the lung on one side, but it actually squashes the mediastinum over see, and so the heart. It affects the whole so area. Both lungs. lungs, so you get bilateral pulmonary hypoplasia, even though the hernia, in most cases, is only Brilliant. on one side. Brilliant, right. Um, and the interesting thing about that condition, again, is that not only are the lungs small, but they're underdeveloped. They're, you, you actually, they're histologically abnormal in that um, you don't get the same number of divisions of the airways in a, in a hypoplastic lung mm. than you would in a normal lung. 
and also the pulmonary vasculature is underdeveloped as well. So um, you actually have high pulmonary vascular resistance, which also causes a problem. Yeah. So you have a whole a host of abnormalities there, which you know all of which work together yeah. to make it difficult for the baby to breathe and to get oxygen from the atmosphere into the blood. So if you, um, well, for lack of technical terms, if you fixed the diaphragmatic hernia, mm. um, would the lungs sort of expand again and, and take up the space? Would they yeah. be able to sort of come back, if you like? Sure. Um, yes, they do expand to a certain extent. Yeah. But of course, that's not the whole story. In fact, it's, that's only a very small part of the story. A lot of people perhaps intuitively would have thought that if you could take those abdominal contents out of the thorax and sew up the diaphragm that the lung would then expand but of course the lung hasn't grown in the first place and mm. that is the main problem and uh, therefore what you need to do is support the baby's breathing for a long time because right. growth is a slow process and very often these babies are very ill for a very long time right. and in fact um, they seem to have a threshold of um, lung growth below which they are unable to survive and so some of these babies do very badly mm. and in fact the prognosis is very polarized um, either the babies die very soon after birth mm. or they survive and they do really well oh, right. so there doesn't <laughs> seem to be much in between, in between. Yeah. so a simple problem like a diaphragmatic hernia causes mm. very serious problems for the baby absolutely wow. in, ma in many at many different levels yeah that's right it's absolutely fascinating. Okay, um, do you, is there anything else that you sort of see on quite a regular basis that we should we should be knowing about? Um, in terms of the, the the growth of the lungs, yeah. I can't I can't think of much else really. Okay, um, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the I suppose the lungs are related to the rest of the body as yeah. well, yeah. and perhaps more more. In, more important than any other system uh, is the immune system. Mm -hmm. And so these babies have very mature immune system. Yeah. And that also relates to the, you know, the surface immunity of the lungs as well. And so um, they're very prone to infection. Yeah. And so pneumonia and other respiratory infections of course. are very common problems on a neonatal unit. Mm. Mm, that's fascinating. It seems to be that um, developmental problems with the lungs obviously cause big problems for babies, you know, probability of survival and what have you. Sure. And it seems to be very well catered for. Uh, yeah. Has research in this area been fairly strong for the last 20 years, 50 years, 100 years? I, I would say for the last 20 years or so. I mean, almost the whole basis for the existence of neonatal intensive care units is to cater for premature babies. Yeah. Um, they, they, by far, they are the commonest group of babies that we have on the neonatal unit so there's a lot of resources being put in being put in to look after these babies and also i think um, a lot of research has been done because uh, this is an in important group of uh, people for for you know as far as the general population is yeah. concerned mm. and there's never any difficulty in raising uh, money for equipment or indeed for on <laughs> ongoing research in this yeah. field absolutely yeah. i mean with uh, babies being born early for a number of reasons seems to be fairly commonplace, mm. fairly you know, likely as it were. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and these babies 
their main problem seems to be with breathing from what I saw in the neonatal yeah. unit. Yeah. And these babies seem to be very, very well cared for. Yes. Uh, in medical expertise and knowledge and treatment and equipment and what mm, have you. That's right. Um, yeah, so it's very nice to see. Yeah, well, it's a very rewarding specialty to be in, to be honest. And, uh, yeah. um, you know, even though the students might think that uh, we're just dealing with uh, little creatures who don't respond very much and don't talk and don't listen, um, they do respond much more than you think. And, uh, you know, it's it's great fun uh, looking after them. But a large part of my work is dealing with parents uh, as well, with, <laughs> with all the worries that you've had to go through, Sam. So... Um, it's it's a great field to work in. I think that was a plug. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, I must say, I mean, the neonatal unit at Swansea is excellent. Mm. And right from the point where the obs and gynae surgeon suggested that Annabelle needed to be uh, born, born. Uh, and we found out more about the services that were available, sure. the worry is very much removed because maybe yeah. seem to be very, very well cared for. Yeah, early, so. absolutely. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Sam. Superb. Thank you very, very much for coming in today. Thanks for your input. Yes, we'll have uh, to get you in again to talk about some other developmental of, aspects. Yeah. I, think. I mean, respiratory oh. embryology is a big thing. Most of the embryology we look at, um, they're formed by the end of eight weeks and, and yeah. they seem to be yeah. less common problems. But this has been very interesting. Great. Thank I'm you glad. Very much. That's great. No problem anytime. Cheers. Okay, so in this podcast, I guess the key points are to uh, look at the timings of key phases of development of the lungs. Yeah. Yeah. And the lung function is linked to development. So lungs are only functioning late in development mm -hmm. and how that can be related to babies that are born early. Those are the key points really, aren't they? Ta-da! Okay. Next time, hopefully we'll be looking at the cardiovascular system. I think we can do the heart and the blood vessels together in one podcast. <coughs> I think we're getting into pharyngeal arches there, which is awesome topic <laughs> <laughs> i can hear them all getting so excited about it ah, aortic arches we'll look at in cardinal veins and that sort of thing we'll try and do it all in one okay thanks rhiannon thank you sam uh see you next time absolutely Rah. bye